Hello and welcome to the EMG Gold podcast. This is your host Dan Healy. I'm the Chief Commercial Officer at EMG. Today I'm very excited to be joined by the Vice President and Head of Global Digital Commercial for Tiva Pharmaceuticals, Timothy White. So Tim specializes in digital transformation, having developed a unique expertise in the fields of omni-channel marketing, digital health, and e-commerce. He's well-versed in commercial innovation, and prior to his current role, has held several positions at several pharma giants, including Lumbeck, Novartis, and Merck. Uh, Tim's worked within leadership roles for over a decade and has been the recipient of many awards including the Pharmaceutical Executive Magazine's Emerging Pharma Leader. So congratulations on that. I'm delighted to be welcoming him onto the podcast today. Thank you very much for joining me, Tim. How are you uh, How are you doing today? Yeah, great, Dan. Thanks for having me. I uh, really appreciate you uh, inviting me onto the podcast as well. So thanks. Super. Great to have you with us. I'd love to begin with a look at how a mindset shift towards digital has been more imperative than ever for all businesses since the start of the pandemic. What's been your experience, Tim, and what's it been like leading a digital transformation over such a short period of time? Yeah, that's a great question. So I I think if I'm to reflect back a year when all of this started, um, one of the things that we, we actually tried to do was to imagine the impact that this would have from a lasting perspective. Um, and, and I think because it was very easy in the short term and like the first weeks after the pandemic to, oh, my gosh, we need to scramble and set up all these things and accelerate our technology efforts and X, Y, Z, A, B, C. But really what we tried to do, and I think what was also somewhat beneficial was to say any decisions maybe that we're going to make right now could also have a longer and a lasting impact on the brand beyond you know, just this pandemic period. And maybe it's a, it's a bit funny because it, it's kind of the opposite of what you think. But by doing that, I think what it did is it opened up the mindsets of our executives, of our whole organization to the opportunities that this would actually present to us to almost bring a new customer experience in the face of this pandemic that could provide us some, some value and some advantage uh, thereafter. So, of course, it's never easy transforming a company. But at the same point, I think, you know, it really starts with first having that mindset of what do you want to do? What do you want to transform it to? What do you want to create? Uh, and then kind of work back from there. Um, so, yeah, it's been a journey and still a ways to go, but uh, certainly a lot of progress has been made. Brilliant. I love that. And I love the way of seeing this as an opportunity rather than a problem. Moving on to the next part, we've got how can digitalization be leveraged to strengthen the relationships with these customers, both in the short and long term, in your opinion? So I think in the short term, I mean, it does come down to people's worlds are turned on their heads. So if you can just provide some level of better information, quick accessibility towards content or to sort of the services that your your business would provide, that can help people. I mean, let's just think about the companies that were quickly able to stand up, you know, their online shops or their online services, uh, their online ordering, whatever it is, you know, just to help solve people's problems in the, in the pandemic. They were greatly rewarded and greatly appreciated. I think for the mid and longer term, in terms of creating and strengthening those relationships, it also needs to be about more deeply trying to understand the customer behavior, actually. So seeing then in this period of the short term where it's maybe a little bit more transactional, just solving the issue at hand and helping them in this moment to actually then move more towards, well, what is the value actually that we've provided to you now in this moment that can actually last for the longer term? And that really would come from understanding 
how the customers are interacting, um, how they're preferring to deal with you. Uh, maybe what is going to be that role of the human face-to-face uh, -face contact once it's once it's permitted again, uh, and where a lot of these services and, and, and digitalization can augment that for the future. So again, yeah, short term, I think it was all about almost just solving their needs, helping them to to address what they needed in that moment. Um, especially our important healthcare professionals that were burdened with a lot of the challenges of the pandemic. And then if you went into the mid and long term to basically personalize much more, try and deepen that digital relationship and have that only augmented by the, uh, the sort of human or the face-to-face -face contact. So a lot of opportunity. And, and it's just a matter of keeping that customer focus and that relationship focus to deliver value for the future. That's interesting. It's brilliant because it's it's obviously so dangerous to with something when things are changing so much to only look short term because things are changing all the time. So great to see that you were looking obviously at the long term impact as well. I think that that was one of the things that you you could see actually in a lot of our competition per se. And we almost had to hold back the reins. It was like, yeah, you know, the pandemic happens. We need to shift everything to remote selling from our sales force and actually to stop for a minute and go, is this really what they need right now? You know, do we need to be just trying to set up all of these, these virtual um, contacts? And in some countries we saw that, yes, they did. And they actually preferred that. And in others, maybe it was other things. It was just on-demand access to the information or, or that quick question that they could have answered within a few moments. Uh, because otherwise, actually, what you could do is almost the opposite. If you try and bombard and not solve a problem, but yet solve your own short-term problem, in the longer term, you actually can kill your transformation efforts because you've just basically turned your customer base off to the value you were trying to bring through these new channels. Yeah, no, the really good point because opportunity is there, but you still need to make sure that the, uh, you're taking advantage of it. You're thinking of the, uh, the medium and long-term risk as well. Sure. Makes perfect sense. You were recently, um, I saw in an article, uh, you contributed, I think, to PharmaTech Outlook. You were speaking about the four E's of digital content. For our audience, could you share what they are? And are there any pharma that embracing them successfully and equally any that they are often lacking? Yeah, I mean, so the four E's, first of all, um, this came... Uh, years ago, actually, when kind of going through and trying to understand, you, you hear this phrase all the time, you know, content is king or content is queen. And it's like literally one of the most abused phrases in digital best practices. And like, we all know that, like, yes, content is the thing that wins you engagement in this world, but how do you create great content? And so the idea of the 40s is basically the content needs to be engaging, entertaining, emotional, and educational. So those are the four. I, I always have to, to go through them in my head. Uh, but on, on that side, what we find is that you need at least two of them realistically to be successful in digital. Um, and, and I think what you would find in pharma, at least, is that historically we're quite good in educational. I mean, that's, I know what you guys uh, are very well focused on and what, what a lot of pharma is. In the end, we're, we, we educate around the products that we have and the science that we create. And maybe that was okay in sort of a very traditional scientific setting. But online, when you've got sort of one click away from, you know, some distraction, basically one quick way constantly from irrelevancy to your customer, you need to tick at least one of those other boxes. And I, I found that, you know, while, while you don't need to tick all four of them, at least if you can tick two of the four E's, you're certainly in a better place for success for the future. In terms of where that's done well, um, I mean, I think there's been good examples and bad examples actually through this COVID period. I, I can think without without naming names and, and shaming uh, colleagues or, or ex-colleagues or whatever, I think you could see certain approaches where traditional long-form 
symposia was brought online, you know, I'm talking here like, you know, 45 minutes or one hour, one hour and a half talking heads with, you know, very, very fine print bar charts on slides. Just that, you know, bare, you know, it does certainly educational, but very much not the other ones. Um, and then others where, where that information was sometime, somehow synthesized into, you know, clear talking points, um, very nice, uh, you know, educational um, animations. And again, not always the flashiest of content, but just told in a way that actually helped you to understand from, uh, from the level of, of storytelling and from engagement. And, you know, those things done well, many times, by the way, in digital, in more short form, um, sizable, you know, chunks, as opposed to kind of long form content, really have been able to succeed um, and, and actually cut through a lot of the noise in the space, especially as these sort of webinar wars started up in March and April, when everybody was trying to do online content, um, you could you could clearly see the ones that were gaining traction. And a lot of those series have continued and the ones where they just sort of started up and then flared out uh, a couple of months later. You know, those four E's, if you just stick to them, I think you certainly have a much better success in the digital era. It's it's an interesting point. I think the the last well, last twelve months has forced the hand of the industry a little bit to to be more than educational. And like you said, some have done it well. Um, some have not reached those levels yet. And that that brings me on, and I I've got to ask you about neurology bites, if I may. So for the listener. Last couple of years, Teva's launched and expanded an online portal entitled Neurology Bytes. So what it is, is it's a news and educational platform dedicated to healthcare professionals. In, in your words, if you may, can you tell us more about the platform and whether you predict the demand for this increasing for these sort of platforms over the, uh, the next sort of six months, uh, year and beyond? Yeah, it's a good, actually, it's a good segue question from the four E's, right? Because it, it actually, a lot of the insights of this came from, from thinking about those four E's. So uh, to be fair, actually, the, the initial insight for Neurology Bytes, as you said, it's a healthcare professional portal, um, was something actually equally that we saw during COVID, which was that there is actually a lot of demand for medical education, for content, from updates and information from top speakers around the world. But unfortunately, people can't or maybe don't even want to always get on an airplane, fly to a city, sit down, you know, spend three to four days with a conference away from their patients or their colleagues and get this information. And so I think the first insight was that there's probably a lot of untapped demand for people that just wanted those, you know, those updates on what was happening scientifically in this case around neurology and around some of the key events in neurology brought to their to their mailbox and certainly to their digital doorstep. So that, that was kind of one half of the insight. And the other half of the insight was this element, you can hear it in the name, Bytes, was that what traditionally we saw online was a lot of this long form, really heavy content, I sort of alluded to it earlier about, you know, one hour, one hour and a half long lectures from, from key opinion leaders. Um, but but how did you build that into almost a very digitally centric way of presenting the content? Um, small bite-sized pieces of information, synthesizing information into the few three or four key points that you needed to know, quick interviews with these Kipinland leaders about distilling down what really were the key learnings from the, the science that they had been working on, and basically staying consistent to that sort of a methodology to, again, deliver on, on a few of those different four E's. And and so I think what we, what we saw um, even pre-pandemic was that Every event, we would see a nice spike in online uh, traffic. In many cases, um, purely organic, so not uh, you know paid search. Of course, can always buy you traffic, but but really people trying to um, get information on the newest science that was coming through these events. And over time, we've then built out a whole different a bunch of other services so that it's not just events 
Um, and I certainly foresee this being a key pillar to our medical education and our scientific exchange approach um, digitally for the for the future. So yeah, from that perspective, I do see it growing. I see other platforms that can gain that sort of uh, mindset in, in, in how to present online content also being successful. And probably what you'll also see on the other side is platforms that um, are not able to kind of catch up to that will fall by the wayside. But from that front, Neurology Bytes, uh, at least for us at Teva, has been very successful. And we encourage everybody here who's listening, of course, to check it out as well and register if you're a, if you're a healthcare professional um, and, uh, and, and help us to, uh, to also improve it and let us know if you have any feedback on how we can make it better. Good. Good. They certainly should. And it, it's really refreshing to hear how well it is going because I myself have um, obviously several contacts who have gone down that route over the last few years. And they certainly have had a lot of challenges, not just in terms of creating that the most relevant and most engaging content, but then getting the healthcare professionals to there. Um, so it's sort of a double, a double challenge on that side. So great to hear that it's going well for you and the team. Yeah, thanks. I mean, I think one of the other elements to that is consistency. And I've seen that a lot in pharma that you sort of you, you launch something, you try something once and oh, one Congress, we tried, it didn't really work, move on to the next. It takes being there every time getting that content, even if it's a small event or a small activity on our side, because people come to expect some level of regularity. I guess that's maybe just another tip behind it that we you can't walk away even after a bit of time. Brands aren't built in a day. Uh, they, they really take time, especially online brands. So anyway, yeah, one last point on it there. Yeah, no, and I think it's important to add because, like you say, you need to have that confidence that you're that we're going to need a few of these to uh, to before we start seeing the effect. So, really, really interesting point. I'm going to take you back now, if you can remember, five years ago. Sure. <laughs> so, in previous articles and interviews, um, including your interview with Reuters events in 2016, obviously more recent as well, but you've repeatedly mentioned the importance of selling a service, not just a product. So. It'd be interesting to find out from your side how you guide your team to ensure they do take this approach when engaging with clients and what benefits um, you guys have noticed from doing this approach. Yeah, so I mean, the first element is to maybe clarify that point a little bit. Um, one of the things that we have to recognize is that in the past, the role of a sales rep or of a, of a commercial operator in our world was really to be the one to provide you know, information and knowledge around the products that we had uh, in our portfolio. And the reality I think that you saw over time is that that information actually fundamentally can be had through many, many other sources, including even by our own company through digital means. And so that role of a commercial approach actually has to provide value. It has to provide actually a, a customer experience, if you will, in on top of just saying, you know, here's my product, here's how it's differentiated versus competition. And so I, I think um, in terms of, you know, to your question, in terms of how to guide the team to make sure that that's taken, um, it certainly helps to to kind of take a, uh, and, and back to almost to the first point, to get the, the organization in, in the customer shoes, actually, and spend time with the customer to understand that, you know, what do they actually want and need from our approach that we're taking right now and where we can maybe help them solve whatever challenges or problems that they have. And so our team works a lot with, um, you know, various methodologies from design thinking components, elements of futurism, all of these various elements centered around customer centricity to see, you know, what are the pain points our customers are having, or maybe what are things they really enjoy about their work? How do we then enhance that and make that better, or in some cases, even solve those pain points that they have? And then, you know, if you do that well, it's almost like you're, um, 
you know, you don't need to sell your, your solution. It's sort of your customers come to it. Now, in the end, I guess we are selling product. I mean, that is what pharmaceutical companies bring. We bring novel and innovative solutions. In the case of Teva, we obviously also have the largest generics portfolio in the world. So, so from that front, that making that bridge in terms of value between the service offering that you're bringing on the exchange level, on the commercial exchange level, tying that to your product, sometimes is the is the trickiest element um, because, of course, you don't just want to be helping your customer. You also need to benefit your your portfolio. And on this side, I think the real key here is to understand where that overlap is. Um, so in Teva, for example, we work a lot with pharmacies. Um, those are a huge client of ours, actually. It, probably one of the largest stakeholders for our generics business. How can we, through our generics portfolio, actually offer value to our customers, you know, to help solve the challenges they have in running maybe a small retail pharmacy? And that can be a number of different facts from just being able to guarantee better stock availability to them, uh, provide more information and services that they can then provide to their patients, a number, a number of different things. But largely speaking, it comes first from the mindset, again. Uh, and if you get that right, then I think actually you start getting the organization thinking around solutions and and not around barriers. That one for sure is a never-ending journey um, and something that I think co- takes constant focus to ensure that um, you can actually deliver on that promise of selling value and service versus just the product. Brilliant, brilliant. And that, interesting enough, actually fits in really, uh, really tightly with one of the, the values of our company at TMJ is uh, for people to be proactive who work here. And it's always looking for the solutions rather than the problems. So great to see alignment and great to see that uh, that practice in action over with you guys as well. You've had, um, obviously you've had a fantastic career so far in pharma, but I want to take you back beforehand, if I may. I understand you worked as a tour manager and then in business development for uh, for the record label PM Records, who specialize in jazz. Uh, are, you a, are you a jazz musician yourself? Yeah, th- this is going way back now, actually. But um, yeah, so I um, actually I'm a classically trained musician from when I was a child. Um, I did get into jazz and certainly more um, kind of rock, I would say. I'd actually performing in a few bands and, and, and touring a little bit on my own through my definitely the early part of my life. But my work in the uh, in the record industry was something I would actually say taught me a lot about what a disrupted sector looks like. Um, so funny enough, because I, you know, I think about this was sort of the early 2000s, and this was when iTunes and Napster and LimeWire and all these things were coming along and just dramatically turning an industry on its head. And so I think seeing that kind of upfront and then turning that back to starting to work in a very slow-moving cultural you know sector that just tends to work on 10 or 15 year horizons of change versus that rapid pace of disruption that was happening in the music industry was just really eye-opening um actually more than anything um but no i mean i guess i i I do play quite a few instruments um i would say i learned music as a language growing up um and that's something i hope to bring to my three-year-old daughter as she's now starting to grow up as well um and it's certainly still a big passion of mine um you know, both both uh, personally and and still dabbling a little bit professionally, just here and there, but nothing uh, nothing serious. Okay. And what what will be the first uh, instrument your three year old learns? Ah, uh, this is an ongoing debate with my wife actually, because <laughs> I I started on uh, I started on violin, which is uh, actually quite a challenging one to start on. Just it's 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 very mentally draining to learn it, and it was very stressful actually as a child to learn it. Um, I think piano probably, and I say that, and maybe it's a, not, not what your podcast hosts or our listeners are, are interested in me to talk about, but piano does, of course, give you the full visibility of, of the whole um, you know, musical scale. So, so you can kind of see everything in front of you, whereas uh, an instrument like violin, it's a little bit more abstract. 
abstract and you kind of have to imagine where things are. And so I think for, for her, um, that, that'll probably be the approach. We'll start with piano. And um, she, she is really funny, though. She, she loves singing. And you can see music is definitely ingrained in her as well. So I can't wait probably another six months or a year and we'll, we'll start her up on lessons and uh, we'll take it from there. Oh, brilliant, brilliant! No, it's great, great to see that uh, that passion coming through already for uh, for for her. From from your perspective, obviously, we're spending more time at home at the moment. One of the opportunities is that gives us more time to uh, to have music on in the background. What what music do you do you have on repeat at the moment? You know, I love the uh, one of your countrymen. I guess I love Think. Uh, he he's just such a fantastic singer songwriter. Um, he came out with an album a few years ago called Resurgum, uh, which has just been yeah on repeat on my. I've got a nice turntable here, so I've been listening to that quite a bit. Um, bunch of great tracks on there, but Think is definitely one when things open up again. He gets out on tour. I just can't wait to see him. I've seen him a few times in concert. He's got a, quite a following here in the Netherlands. Um, so, so yeah, for those of you who don't know him, Think, F-I-N-K, really uh, brilliant artist, great band, and uh, check him out. Brilliant. So great plug for, uh, for, for Think. I've jotted that down. I'll give him a listen as well. Thank you very much. It's been fascinating, obviously, speaking with you today, Tim. Thanks same, very same. much for, uh, for taking the time to join us on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me, and uh, you know, look forward to speaking with you again sometime. That sounds good. That sounds great. That's all we have time for this week, folks. So to our listeners, if you'd like to hear more conversations like the brilliant one we had today, please join us again next Tuesday, where we'll get your podcast for another episode of the EMG podcast. Don't forget to check out our sister magazine too at www.emg-gold.com. Until then, take care and goodbye. Goodbye.